0: Please remain standing for the reading from God's word. Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. Pilate then called them together, the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent it back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Merrill, for reading our lesson this morning. Uh, you ought to be on TV. Have you ever thought about that? So good to be with each of you on this rainy Sunday, the first Sunday in the month of April. It is hard to believe that we're like one week away from Palm Sunday, from the pilgrimage that will guide us through Holy Week, Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Uh, Adam, there are actually, I think all total, 13 worship opportunities between our satellite campuses and also Brentwood campus on Saturday night and, and several on Sunday morning. And then in your bulletin there, we've enumerated the the services that will be available during the week. And I think one of the most important is the Stations of the Cross. Uh, We invite you at some point during next week, and it will be open most of the week uh, during office hours in Haney Hall to spend an hour going through the Stations of the Cross. You will be better for it and you'll experience Holy Week in a new way. Also, the family Holy Week uh, time that will be offered this year meant so much to so many last year. So, we're looking forward to that time together. Two weeks from today is Easter, and three weeks, Confirmation Sunday, uh, where we will celebrate with 120 confirmands who will stand before us and profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's an unforgettable day, so we look forward to what God is doing among us and through us and in spite of us in these days. We're in the next to last week of this series that we've been talking about called Cross-Training, and we've been reading through Mark's gospel, the earliest recorded narrative of the ministry of Jesus, but today Meryl has read to us from Luke's gospel, from Luke's passion account, which interestingly enough contains an open-air hearing, an open-air trial that happens. Pilate, the governor of Judea, or the prefect, as they would call him, at this point is prepared to announce the verdict regarding Jesus. If you know the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, earlier in chapter 23, the first five verses, the Sanhedrin, the religious council, had, had brought Jesus to Pilate on trumped-up charges. The charges, in fact, were threefold. They said of Jesus, he's a rebel, he's a revolutionary. Secondly, they said, he forbids the Jews to pay taxes to Caesar, which was untrue. And the third, he's claiming to be a king of some sort. He's claiming to be Messiah. Pilate performed his own personal deposition, we know that from the text, Herod too, who was the Tetrarch in Galilee, because Jesus was from Galilee in that jurisdiction, to Herod he went, and neither one of them found any fault in this rabbi. In fact, Pilate declares three times in Luke 23 the innocence of Jesus, but in this public hearing, things suddenly go south. Pilate had resolved in his mind to have Jesus flogged, severely beaten, which in itself was unlawful for a person who is presumed to be innocent. Now I presume in the Roman day, as in our day, that you were presumed innocent until proven guilty, but it appears in this story as though Jesus is presumed guilty until proven innocent. And so Pilate, knowing what's happening, decides to throw the crowd a bone. He's appeasing the mob by having Jesus flogged so that Pilate can get on with the business of keeping the peace. And after all, that is the job of the governor. That's the task of the prefect, law and order. And Pilate knew from past days that there are sometimes you have to do what you have to do. The end justifies the means. And in this case, if you know first century Jerusalem, it was a minefield. It still is sometimes. Emotions are running high, especially during the feasting time of Passover. Jews from all over the world, maybe as many as a million people, populated the city during the Passover, and Pilate knew it wouldn't take much to trip the trigger to tip the scales and there'd be blood in the streets, there would be mutiny in Jerusalem. And I don't have to tell you, the political climate in that day was intense. Even Caiaphas, who was the leader of the Sanhedrin, the religious council made up of 71 chief priests, was heard to say, better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish and Jerusalem was a ticking time bomb. The prefect has to do what the prefect has to do in order to keep a lid on the pot and as well to keep his post. And what you see in this open-air hearing is a lot of politicking. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but even in the United Methodist Church, there's a lot of politicking that goes on. I saw a sign the other day. My wife begged me not to share it, but I'm going to share it. Politicians and diapers have one thing in common. They both should be changed regularly and for the same reason. (laughs) Now you know why she didn't want me to share it. But that is so true, it ought to be in the Bible somewhere. So what you see in this open-air hearing is all the positional authorities, people appointed like me, the powers that be, they're all afraid. And because of their fear, they're all protecting something. The chief priests were protecting the temple, the religious institution, and I can understand why. Just a few days before, on Palm Sunday, here comes this Galilean rabbi, namely Jesus, riding on the back of a mule to a ticker tape parade, hosanna in the highest, they're saying, and Jesus' first stop in Jerusalem, where does He go? The first stop is to the temple where He does a little renovating. He overturns the money changers, and he says, so that everyone can hear, you have made my house of prayer into a den of robbers. And then he renovated the temple, and it took a pretty shekel to clean it up. Now, the Scripture doesn't say it, but you know it's true. The trustees had an emergency meeting that afternoon at the temple, because you cannot have some rogue rabbi acting like he owns the place. And they were protecting, get this, the temple from Jesus. I've known a few clergy like that, who didn't always share the challenging parts of the gospel. Sometimes pastors coddle their people rather than preach the gospel to their people. And you can't have a rabbi threatening the institution. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's protecting something, and Pilate was protecting. He was protecting himself, his reputation, his position. In fact, Joseph, Josephus Flavius tells us that at this point in his leadership, and he served there for a decade, Pilate had already been reprimanded by Rome because of his lack of sensitivity towards Jewish sensibilities. And the Scripture doesn't say this, but you know that in his personal development plan, he was being treated for anger management. I mean, the man had some hostility towards religious folks. And so all of a sudden, this is a chess match political chess match that's happening in Jerusalem. If you look at the fourth gospel, John's version, parallel of this story, watch this. When Pilate announced the decision to free Jesus, you remember what the religious professional's response was? If you let this man go, they said, you are no friend of Caesar. That's not a throwaway line. That's checkmate. It's an idle threat. What they're saying is this, if word should reach Rome that you have released a man who claims to be a king, you're toast. In fact, you're going to be teaching typewriter maintenance at Leavenworth because you cannot have two kings when you only have one throne. What's happening here is the priests, the ministers, are out-politicking the politicians. They're maneuvering the politicians, and everybody's protecting something. Everybody's afraid except for Jesus. The only innocent man in this open-air hearing is the one who says nothing. He's silent. And when you read that detail, automatically you go seven centuries before to the suffering servant song, In Isaiah 53, which says of him, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, he never opened his mouth. You remember that African spiritual? And he never said a mumbling word. You are no friend of Caesar's, they said. Pilate counters their threat with what I think is a stroke of political genius. Apparently, there was a custom, there was a ritual in that day during the Passover of releasing a prisoner or commuting a sentence. They called it the Paschal Pardon. There happened to be an inmate who was scheduled that Good Friday to walk the Green Mile, he was a terrorist. He was a political rebel, he was a religious fanatic, and he was guilty of homicide. And his name was Barabbas. That's a really interesting name. It's a compound name. The prefix bar means son of. The word Abba means father. Literally, this insurrectionist is the son of the father. And then if you look at Matthew's account, it tells us that Barabbas' first name was also Jesus. So, what you have on trial at this open-air hearing is you have two Jesuses. And so, Pilate, in a moment of what I think is political genius, thinks in his mind, if I give this mob a choice between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth, it's a no-brainer. They will pick Jesus of Nazareth to be released every day of the week and twice on Sunday, but that isn't at all what happens. When given the option, listen, of a Jesus with a sword or a Jesus with a towel, the crowd picks the sword. Boy, some things never change, do they? I mean, who in their right mind wants a suffering Savior when you can have a conquering warrior? And in this hearing, vengeance beats grace. Violence trumps mercy. Conquest defeats compassion. And the crowd says, as the crowd still says, give us Barabbas. Pilate asked the question. Now, there's a little interrogation of the crowd, then what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him, they say. And when Pilate objects to the crowd, I want you to watch what the crowd says. Watch this, verse 23. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Is it just me or does the squeaky wheel always get the grease? Have you ever noticed that the whiny baby in the restaurant you go always gets the milk? That the tallest trees always get blown about by the fiercest winds. Give us Barabbas and Pilate did I thought about something Bishop Pennell once said of a former bishop that I served under in North Georgia. He described him in these words, he was often wrong, but never in doubt. (laughs) Squeaky wheel, don't elbow your spouse. I'm talking about someone else at this point. There's a movie called American Gangster. I don't recommend it to you, but Frank Lucas, it's about a real character in Harlem who was sentenced to 70 years for drug trafficking, and he said, and I quote, and this is profound, what I learned during that time was this, the loudest one in the room is the weakest one in the room. Bishop Tutu, who taught at Emory for many years, used to say of his father, Dad always taught us, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. And that's brilliant. But in this text, the loudest voice prevailed until Sunday. With no way out for Jesus, Pilate finds an escape hatch for himself. That's what we do. According to Matthew's narrative, the governor did something peculiar at this point. It's hard to understand. Matthew says at this point, he washed his hands. And what in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked. It's an old Jewish custom. It's an expression of denial, what he's doing. It's an expression, of. it's a disclaimer. For a Jewish man or woman to wash their hands in the midst of a tenuous dilemma is a way of saying, I'm not responsible. This is not my doing. I am not to blame for this verdict. In fact, you see the first precedent for washing hands in Deuteronomy 21, it's in the Torah. It says, if a dead body is found and it's unknown who the killer is, you first find the nearest town or village, this is in the Bible, and the elders of that town should sacrifice a heifer and then wash their hands as a symbol that they rid themselves of all guilt related to this death. It's a way of saying, it wasn't me. We are innocent of this man's blood. But in the case of Rome versus Jesus, there is no amount of hand washing that can remove the stain of this injustice. I've always felt a little bit sorry for Pilate because his epitaph is in the Creed that we just recited. In relationship to a dying carpenter and he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. How would you like that on your gravestone? And Pilate handed Jesus over as they wished. Mark 15 verse 15 says it like this, listen, and Pilate seeking to satisfy the crowd delivered Jesus to be crucified, and it's the same old, same old, political extortion trumps spiritual discernment again until Sunday. There's one other detail worth noting before we're through, before we come to the table. It's in Matthew. At this point, Matthew says, That the crowd spoke what I think is one of the most haunting words in all the New Testament. They said, may the blood of this man, Jesus, be upon us and our children. In other words, they're not washing their hands. They're saying, let his blood be on our hands. They're taking the rap for his death on themselves. And it's ironic Because the blood of Jesus will be upon them, but not as a curse, rather as a cure. The death of Jesus is not blamed on anyone. It's a gift for everyone. To the point that even the captive on the cross will pray for the captors before he breathes his last. Abba, Forgive them, they have no idea what they're doing. The paschal pardon, I think, telegraphs the message of the gospel. The sacrifice of this innocent lamb will make sons and daughters of the guilty ones, and his body and blood is upon us. The death of Jesus means life for Barabbas, and that's the gospel. It was William Cooper in the 18th century. Samuel Coleridge said he's the greatest modern poet of our day. He wrote these words, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains." Let me give you one example and I'm finished. I was reading recently of a doctor in the Bronx whose name is Samuel Weinstein. Dr. Samuel Weinstein is the chief of pediatric cardiothoraxic surgery. I don't even know what that is. It took me a day to say it. He's a smart man, doctor, cardiologist. And several years ago, he went to Central America. He served in El Salvador with an organization called Heart Care International. And he went to do operations for kids who had desperate needs, life-threatening needs. It would take, however, more than his expertise and equipment to save the life of eight-year-old Francisco Fernandez, eight-year-old boy. Dr. Weinstein and his team began operating on this young boy's heart shortly before noon on a Friday, and 12 hours later, still working, the procedure took a deadly turn. He said, and I quote, the surgery was going well, everything great, but he was bleeding. And we didn't have the medicines that we have in America to stop the blood flow, and after a while we couldn't give him any more blood because we were running out of his blood type. It's such a rare type. It's B negative, which you know is 2% of the population. The only other person in that operating room with B negative was Dr. Weinstein. And so here's what he did. He stepped down from the table, his colleagues continued the work, he laid down his scalpel, he took off his gloves, and he started washing his hands and his forearm. And in the corner of that operating room, he sat down on a chair and took his own blood. When he had given all he could, he drank a couple of bottles of water, ate a Pop-Tart, Fifteen minutes later, back at the table, and now he's watching his own blood circulating into that boy's little veins. And he finished his work, and he saved that heart, and he saved that boy's life. The boy's mother said her hope was that with that transfusion, that her son, too, would grow up to be a cardiologist and save other people's hearts. When I read that, I thought, I I know what that doctor was doing. We have a name for it, it's it's called (laughs) cross-training. That's what he was doing. It's what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, pick up a cross, and when you see a need, do something about it. Oh friends, we have a physician like that. And he has yet to find a patient that he cannot and will not save. In fact, he wants you to be a part of the triage. That last verse of Cooper's hymn, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and will be till I die. And will be till I die, and will be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme, and it will be till I die. That's your theme. That's my theme. To the glory of God. Amen.